Acts chapter 20. This morning we will focus on verses 25 through 38. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25. Let me read this to you. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. We are currently enjoying a season of both physical and spiritual growth here at Calvary Bible Church. And for that, we give God all of the glory. But whenever things go well in life, I think you will agree that it is our nature to relax upon our laurels, kind of let down our guard and unwittingly become self-satisfied and overconfident and perhaps even proud. There's a great danger in this. The Apostle Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And of course, illustrations of this abound in Scripture. I am reminded that it was in a season of paradise an unparalleled relationship with God that Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation and plunged the entire human race into sin. It was in a time of great blessing that David sinned against the Lord. It was in a time of unsurpassed wisdom and unequaled prosperity that Solomon abandoned what God had warned him and fell into sin. And it was during a season of peace and prosperity and military invincibility that Judah apostatized 
and brought upon themselves the judgment of God. And more often than not, the failure of God's people is a result of the failure in its leadership. Dear friends, we must not let this happen to us. And by God's grace, we will do all that we can to prevent it. But thankfully, God has not left us without instruction in this matter, as we shall see in the text this morning. Here in this text, we find Luke recording a very sad farewell, a tearful farewell. Paul has gathered, you will recall, the elders of Ephesus, and he has just reminded them in verses 18 through 24 of the character of his ministry among them over the past three years as he pastored them, desiring them to follow his example as a faithful shepherd, a humble slave, a suffering servant, a fearless preacher, and a zealous evangelist. And now he continues with some very stern warnings and exhortations that I am calling in my discourse this morning, elder essentials. The elders are the overseers, the pastors, the leaders of the church. And this morning we're going to see five essentials that should characterize the shepherds of a church, that should characterize the elders and the pastors in their ministry, a charge that would raise the probability that Paul's apostolic ministry would continue in that church. Let me give the five to you. And then I will elaborate on them. Paul tells them, number one, to proclaim the whole of Scripture. Secondly, to guard the integrity of their heart. Thirdly, to protect the flock from false teachers. Fourthly, to devote yourself to prayer and the word. And then finally, to give more than you receive. Now, while these admonitions were given to the leaders of the church there at Ephesus, they nevertheless apply to all of us. Not only must we as as overseers, as elders of the church, hear and obey these elder essentials, these priorities for shepherding the church of God, but you also must hold us accountable to them as well as apply these principles to your own life. These are certainly the guiding principles of our ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. They are, as many of you know, radically different from the fad-driven churches of neo-evangelicalism that now dominate the Christian landscape. But Luke begins here in his historical account of this solemn but inspiring scenario by saying in verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Luke here recording Paul's words. You will recall that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome. And he knew full well as he was embarking upon this trip that the Spirit of God had warned him that he would be in bonds and afflictions. And he knew that he would never see these dear people again, this side of glory. Verse 26, he says, therefore, in other words, in light of preaching the kingdom, the basileia, this is a term that occurs eight times in the book of Acts, referring to the divine rule of God in both 
a universal and a mediatorial sense, including the church as the spiritual nucleus of the coming kingdom promised to Israel. This is the overall sphere of God's sovereign rule. Paul preached to them the kingdom, all of the redemptive plan and purpose of God. He covered this vast concept. We know, according to verse 27, he declared the whole purpose of God. Sadly, these are truths that many Christians have never been taught. But he says, therefore, in light of all of this, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. This is a concept that the people of that day would have understood very well. A concept rooted in God's warning to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33, where in Verse seven, God speaks to him, saying, now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, oh, wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. In other words, the Old Testament prophets bore a grave responsibility to boldly proclaim repentance and preach the truth that God had told them to say, not their own words. And if they failed in this regard, God would chasten them. And frankly, nothing is different today. In James 3 and verse 1, we are reminded, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. A very sobering reminder to me and should be as well to all who stand before God's people and say, thus saith the Lord. So Paul spoke only the truth and he did so comprehensively. And therefore, he knew that he would not be held accountable for those who rejected it and suffer loss of reward. Verse 27, he said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. This brings us to the first essential responsibility of an elder, of a pastor, of a church leader. Number one, to proclaim the whole of Scripture. It's easy to shrink little Greek term, hupostello, it's easy to do that. It means, by the way, to draw back or to cower, to avoid something because of fear, to keep silent. It's easy to do that. There is always a temptation for me to cower. You probably know the feeling as well. It's easy to somehow be tempted to cater to one group over another like a politician who sways like a willow in the winds of pop popular opinion, telling people what they want to hear so that he can get elected. This should never characterize a shepherd. This is what Paul is reminding them. A preacher must learn to live with the inevitability of hostility when he preaches the whole counsel of God. If he tries to gain approval from one group, he will, without doubt, gain disapproval from another. Moreover, the same group that would applaud him for his words on one particular doctrine one day 
will tear him to pieces if he differs with them the next. I have literally had men praise me on one day and within a few days later attack me with a demonic violence. But all this is to be expected. You see, sinful man absolutely hates anything that challenges his cherished beliefs and behaviors. But we are to declare the whole purpose of God. If I can put it a little more practically, especially to those of you who are hearing my words this morning that are pastors and teachers, we are not to just pick and choose topical sermons. We are not to magnify one or two doctrines and ignore all of the others. We are not to just kind of camp out on familiar, popular, non-controversial topics and disregard all the rest. I've been in churches where all you will ever hear is evangelism. Every sermon, evangelism. I know of others where all you will ever hear is stewardship. They're always begging for money. I know of others where all you will hear is something about prophecy. And on and on it can go. And how often... I have seen men and entire denominations emphasize one doctrine over another to the degree that their whole character becomes one of bigotry and bitterness. Those who would emphasize, for example, God's sovereignty over man's responsibility or the other way around man's responsibility and ignore God's sovereignty. Those that would emphasize duty over grace or love over wrath or separatism over freedom. I know of entire denominations that pound the drum of the King James only so loudly and constantly that their congregations have grown deaf to any other truth. That's not preaching the whole counsel of God. Shrinking can take on many forms as I think about it. Many preachers will read a magnificent text only to go off in some unrelated tangent that has absolutely nothing to do with the Spirit's intended meaning. I have sat in services in my life where the text was butchered so badly that I have literally wept in the service. As I watched undiscerning congregations gobble up the worthless and often dangerous dribble of some careless preacher. I give you one example that you would all be familiar with in our day. There is a very popular charlatan today. His name is Joel Osteen. He has written a book called Your Best Life Now. And it has enjoyed bestseller status for, for many, many months now in both the secular and evangelical categories. If you read that book, you will see that the contents are as shallow as water on a plate. And what is noticeably absent is any doctrinal precision. It's obvious that he is an entrepreneur, not a theologian. One reviewer described it as, quote, a collection of homespun wisdom blended with a typical televangelist style emphasis on health, prosperity and the power of positive thinking. Beloved, this is the typical ear tickling cotton candy deceptions indicative of the wide gate that the Lord warned us about. That leads to destruction. Many will be that will find it. Thinking that this is the way to heaven. And the Lord says, those people will someday cry out to me, but Lord, Lord. And he will say, I, I never knew you. Sprinkled, sprinkled throughout the book or Bible verses, 
used completely out of context. Verses that are used without any exegetical or contextual considerations whatsoever. Passages that are tortured beyond recognition to support the author's deceptive and confusing and often contradictory conclusions. And yet what is sad is the insatiable appetites of of unwitting and undiscerning people that are looking desperately for a God that they can manipulate will devour this kind of poison every day that is served to them by Christian television and Christian radio and Christian music and publishing and even in pulpits. There is even a trend today in Christian radio programming to do away with Bible teaching, especially Bible expositors. They are being replaced with contemporary Christian music and talk radio and those things that are a little more popular, if not a lot more popular to the masses so that they can get the ratings. And it's for this reason, dear friends, that the Apostle Paul warned Timothy, who became the pastor of this church at Ephesus, to preach the word when it's popular, when it's not in season and out of season. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The grammar there is so important. The turning away is in the active voice. It's something that people will choose to do. They will hear the truth. They will not like it. It will be offensive so that they will so they will deliberately and consciously reject it. They will turn away from it. And then the text says they will turn aside to myths as in the passive voice. It indicates that the myths will overpower them without them even realizing it. And therein is why so many people today believe things that are absolutely ludicrous when compared to the truth of Scripture. And you wonder why. The answer is simple. They have turned away their ears from the truth. Paul went on to remind Timothy in that text that I just read in 2 Timothy 2 But you, Timothy, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. When Paul spoke of the whole purpose of God, we must understand that it always begins with the gospel, but it will include an understanding, certainly, of of preaching about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the unique, unique ministry that they all have. It will include, for example, just the the doctrine of salvation with all of the magnificent doctrines that are a part of that. As I think about it, that would include the origin of sin, the depravity of man, the imputation of sin. Those are the reasons why we need salvation. People need to be taught that. The doctrine of salvation will also include the idea of, of, of grace and election and calling. This is why we accept salvation. It will include concepts like the death of Christ and the the efficacy and the significance of the atonement. This is how salvation is made possible. It will include the doctrines of, of faith and repentance and conversion. This is how we accept salvation. It will include the doctrines of our union with Christ, justification, regeneration, sanctification, Um, perseverance, which is eternal security and glorification. These are all of the things that that we receive when we are saved. So these are the great truths, dear friends, that are a part of the whole purpose of God. It will include 
understanding the kingdom of God, past, present and future. It will include understanding and teaching about the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell, the dangers of self-deception and on and on it goes. You leave out one strand and the whole rope is weakened. Many Christians live their whole life in spiritual infancy because they were never taught how to read, so to speak. All they know is the ABCs of the gospel. You ask them to explain some of the important doctrines of the word of God and they begin to stammer and stutter and ignorance. And then often they dismiss their ignorance by saying, well, you know, those things really aren't that important. Oh, but they are that important. That's why we are told to preach the whole counsel of God. They are important because without understanding these truths, you will lack discernment. You will be easily deceived. You will forfeit the blessing that comes from a deeper understanding of the word of God. Your worship will be stifled. Your spiritual growth will be stunted. Your prayer life will be shallow. Your view of the world and of history will be like that of a child. How sad to watch Christians and some that I know that attend these kinds of churches where they are never taught really anything. And some of them will actually express their chronic frustration, but refuse to do anything about it. They sacrifice their growth and their joy and their power and their discernment and their worship on the altars of tradition and relationship. Dear friends, that is a high price to pay. For mere social interaction. But when we preach the whole council, it's not only preaching doctrine, but duty. It's teaching men and women to be faithful in obedience to the word of God. The shepherd must address the specific issues that are relevant in the lives of the congregation and the culture. Even addressing certain individual matters of great concern that will arise from time to time. In fact, every minister must know the minds of those under his charge that he might speak so directly to their conscience as to cause them to feel as though he has been reading their mail. This is part of the whole purpose of God. And without care for his comfort or his reputation, God's man will declare all of God's truth come what may. This is all part of preaching the whole counsel of God. But secondly, Paul exhorts them to guard the integrity of their heart. Notice verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves. You see, this is a call to a personal pursuit of holiness. This is a call to purity of life. This is a call to having a secret devotion to God, a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. This is a call to self-denial and self-examination and self-discipline. In fact, Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. You think about it. How can a faithful shepherd shepherd his flock if he cannot even guard the integrity of his own heart? By the way, this is not done with accountability partners. I believe that is a much overrated prescription to godliness. The reason I say that is we are far too clever in our own deceptions 
and manipulations to be easily discovered by human detection. I can even deceive myself. How much easier it would be for me to deceive you. Now, that's not to say we don't need accountability. But if that is your sole way of keeping your heart pure, you're in trouble. You see, a man must learn to walk in the integrity of his heart before an omnipresent and an omniscient God who sees all, who knows all and rewards those who diligently seek him. Second Chronicles 16:9, we read that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout all of the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart are completely his. And in Proverbs 4:23. We are told to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And Paul even went on to warn Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. It begins with yourself, then your teaching. Then he said, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those Who hear you. So Paul reminds these elders, oh, men, guard your thoughts, guard your actions, guard your words, safeguard your marriage, your family, protect your doctrine. Guard your character and your conduct that everything that you think and do might reflect the glories of Christ and his righteousness. Be ever vigilant to examine yourself in light of Scripture. And always be suspect of your own spirituality. So he reminds them and exhorts them to proclaim the whole counsel of God, all of Scripture, guard the integrity of their heart, and then thirdly, protect the flock from false teachers. Notice again in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased With his own blood. The overseers, the episkopos in the original language, are the elders. They are the pastors, the leaders of the church. By the way, they are very different from deacons. A deacon is a servant. Diakonos is the term. It's a servant. And in fact, there are two separate offices within a church with two separate lists of qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3. Unlike a deacon whose primary responsibility is to serve the church in various ways, the overseer or the elder has two primary functions, and that is teaching and ruling. In other words, the church is to be taught and led by overseers, the under shepherds of the Lord's flock. In Titus 1.9, we read that they are to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's different than the responsibility of a deacon. In the New Testament, we read throughout that the church is to be ruled by a plurality of qualified, and I want to underscore that ten times, qualified elders. Never one single man. And never by the congregation. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a democratic congregational rule. You just don't see that. Believers are commanded in Hebrews 13, 17 to obey your leaders and submit to them. You see, the sheep don't feed and lead the shepherds. That's chaos. As a footnote, whenever 
I have seen a church that thinks it's necessary to rule their shepherds. Typically, one of two things have occurred. Either A, they have unqualified shepherds that are not and maybe unable even to feed and lead the flock. Men who do not have nor do they deserve the confidence and respect of their flock. So the flock thinks they need to do something. And in fact, they do. Or what you have is rebellious, ignorant, and maybe arrogant sheep that resent godly authority. And most of the time, these will be tares amongst the wheat, or worse yet, wolves among the sheep. I have even been around churches that are basically family-owned and operated. Maybe you've been in that kind of a church. My, talk about having the fox guarding the hen house. If you're in a church like that, you need to run like the devil himself is after you, because he is. So Paul exhorts these men whom the Holy Spirit has made overseers, to shepherd the church of God. So much can be said about shepherding. I'll just give you but one illustration in First and Second Thessalonians. We have some of the duties of a shepherd. A shepherd is to pray, evangelize, equip, defend, love, labor, model, lead, feed, watch, warn, teach, exhort, encourage, correct, confront, and rescue. That's just in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It gets even more specific in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. So Paul goes on now in verse 29 to describe why shepherding is so important. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Can you believe that? In other words, from the very midst of your own church, these type of people will arise. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish, which literally means to warn you. To warn each one with tears. As I'm sure you are aware, the elders of Calvary Bible Church are constantly on guard for those outside and even inside the church. That might speak, as Paul says, perverse things. Perverse means twisted or distorted. Perverted things. And certainly this can include things like false teaching, errant theology, and even unbiblical thinking. As he says here, to draw away other church members literally means to drag someone off like a wolf would do to a helpless prey. Several years ago, we had to confront a very popular movement that came on the scene and is still quite popular, the purpose-driven life, which is a profound distortion of the gospel. It calls people to self-fulfillment, not self-denial. It is a movement that preaches a message of purpose rather than a message of redemption. If you read those writings, you will see that they ignore, if not completely eviscerate the central themes of the gospel. You will not read things about the holiness of God, about his law, about the depravity of man, about grace and and the mercy of God, about the atoning work of Christ and his resurrection. You will not read things about the the profound importance of of being redeemed from sin and the crucial doctrines of, of justification and sanctification and glorification. You will not read about the nature of genuine saving faith. You will not read about the danger of self-deception and the lordship of Christ 
And we have had to protect our flock from these teachings. And from time to time, other unbiblical and dangerous teachings and movements are introduced into the church that we must silence. When we guard against these types of people, it includes biblically people that are troublemakers, divisive people, gossips, immoral people, liars, abusive people, overbearing control freaks. Sometimes what you might call the preference police that are seeking a following and beating everybody up because you don't believe the way I do on certain preferences. Or even ambitious entrepreneurs and entertainers seeking an audience. We've seen them all, even here at this church. In fact, Jude describes these dangerous wolves in verse 16. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. It's fascinating. Whenever I think about shepherding and sheep and understand how I am am a shepherd, but also a sheep in God's flock, I'm reminded of literal sheep and literal shepherds. I've been around them on many occasions out west. And whenever I think of them, I must confess that the first thing that stands out is they smell really bad. But I know that a shepherd, when you're around a shepherd of the sheep, you know what? He smells bad, too, because he's been around the sheep. That's why I say a shepherd has to smell like the sheep, a shepherd of the church. And I say that in a positive way because it's not like you smell bad, but I think you understand the analogy. But shepherds smell like sheep. They think like sheep. They know their sheep and the sheep know them. It's very, very obvious. Indeed, sheep stink. They make obnoxious noises. They are utterly helpless. They have no defensive capabilities. Certainly no offensive capabilities. They are fat and they are slow. They are easily frightened. They will stampede over just about anything. And if there's a cliff around, they'll run right off a cliff and kill themselves. Indeed, sheep are dumber than a bag of rocks. If you're around them very long, you will see that. They get lost very easy. They can wander away. They're oblivious to danger. In fact, if sheep get just a few hundred yards away from familiar territory and their shepherd, and even a few hundred yards from water, they will perish. They can't find their way back. They will starve to death. Sheep must be protected from things like rocky crags and canyons. They've got to be protected from running water. They've got to be protected from, from the elements, especially rain and snow. They must be protected from certain kinds of poisonous plants that a shepherd must be ever vigilant to guard them from. They must be protected from internal and external parasites, from a multitude of, of diseases. There are various kinds of flies. I've seen this in the mountains before, even with caribou and with elk and, and other wild animals. Certain kinds of flies that will sting them and cause Groups of animals to just run to try to get away from them. Likewise, with sheep, these flies can sting and lay eggs in their eyes and their ears and their skin. When the larva matures, it, 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 it produces large holes through the flesh, open wounds. In fact, it can be so bad that it will drive an animal insane. 
sheep in particular have been known to beat their heads against rocks and and trees in order to relieve themselves from the agonizing itch. But dear friends, the most dangerous predator, the most dangerous thing for a sheep will be wild dogs and wolves and coyotes. In fact, they slip in amongst them virtually in an invisible fashion. Most shepherds are unable to see them. They typically slip in at night. That's why so many shepherds try to use dogs that have senses far beyond the shepherds. And the wolves, for example, can slip into a herd of sheep and kill literally hundreds of them in one night. They will often just kill them or tear up parts of them. And they love to eat just the liver and then walk away and leave the rest. Often the pregnant ewes will abort their unborn lambs as they flee in panic from the vicious predators. In fact, the incredible stealth of wolves and even wild dogs and coyotes have caused many in the West here in the United States, especially the American Indian people, to insist that there's something demonic about them. In fact, they call the coyote the great trickster, the shadow that no one can catch. Well, shepherds all around the world encounter the same kinds of dangers. And beloved, Jesus spoke of the stealth and wickedness of human wolves that would come in and destroy the flock. In Matthew 7:15, he said, "Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." In other words, they come dressed up like a preacher. You see, a shepherd would literally wear sheep's clothing. And the idea here is these ravenous wolves will often appear as a pastor. In Second Peter, we are reminded that they secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secretly there in that text literally means to, to smuggle under the guise of something else. He went on to say that many will follow their sensuality in their greed. They will exploit or cheat you with false words. They will entice you by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Jude even tells us that they will creep into your churches unnoticed. He reminds us that they will be dreamers. In other words, they will be mystics who falsely claim that God reveals truth to them through dreams and visions. He says that they will defile the flesh, reject authority. They are hidden reefs. In your love feasts, they will cause divisions. They're worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. So for these reasons, Paul exhorts the shepherds to be on guard for these vicious wolves that will rise up even from amongst you. The very thing that he did for three years with tears. But fourthly, he reminds them to devote yourself to prayer and the word. Notice verse 32 and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The word commend means to to commit or to entrust someone to the care or protection of someone else. And in this context, it refers to being commended to God through prayer and through his word. And dear friends, this comes only through a secret devotion and a sacred intimacy that is developed in the fortress of prayer. In a study of the word, in Psalm 25, 
Verse 14, we read that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to them. The secret there of the Lord. We talked about it last Wednesday night. It's a Hebrew concept that signifies the confidential intimacy, the select fellowship of the counsel of the Lord. An intimate circle with whom the Most High confides and reveals the truths of redemption. This is where the shepherd must live. Within the secret confidence of the Lord. Indeed, Proverbs 3.32 says that he is intimate with the upright. No shepherd can possibly fulfill his duties with the flock apart from a life of study and a life of prayer. In fact, you will recall in Acts 6, it was for this reason that they selected men to be administrators of the church. This was probably the first church staff there in Acts 6. So that, according to verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And friends, this is especially important for the teaching shepherd of a church, the pastor teacher. Never let him be distracted from this solemn calling. Otherwise, the shepherd will gradually lose his keen eye for spiritual discernment. And the sheep will begin to suffer malnutrition and they will begin to wander in unprotected territories and they will be devoured. Notice again in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. I commend you here to the preaching and the teaching of the word so that the people will grow and you will grow into spiritual maturity. And he says, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, it's the word of grace that will give you all of the magnificent truths and promises necessary for you to keep your eyes fixed on the glories of your inheritance and thus protect you from the twin plagues of ministry, that of doubt and discouragement. So I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Friends, if I can put it more practically here, you show me a pastor who is weak in prayer and weak in study. And I will show you a man that will be weak in the pulpit and a congregation that will be systematically destroyed by sin and by deception. So he tells them, proclaim the whole of Scripture. Guard the integrity of your heart. Protect the flock from false teachers. Devote yourself to prayer and the word. And finally, give more than you receive. Verses 33 through 35, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, he's saying, men, you are not in church leadership for the money. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6:24 that you cannot serve God and mammon or riches. You will either hate the one and love the other or hold to one and despise the other. In other words, church leadership is no place for selfish ambition. It's no place for greedy entrepreneurs. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 18, that he offered the gospel free of charge. Too many men and even women these days enter into the pastorate to make money. And sadly, even many people go into missions to somehow get all of their financial needs taken care of. Wrong motive. Hebrews 13, 5 says, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And later, 1 Timothy 6, Paul speaks to Timothy, who, as I say, became the pastor here here at Ephesus. And he said, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Flee from these things, you man of God. So Paul tells them, you are not in this position of leadership to take advantage of the people and to line your, your pockets. That's what the false teachers do. As Paul said in Titus 1.11, the false teachers teach things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. So here we have five essentials, five attitudes that should characterize church leaders. Can you imagine, dear friends, what the Christian church would be like if all of the shepherds would obey these truths? I can't imagine even what this church would be like. If I could more faithfully be obedient to these truths. Certainly, overall, the Christian church in its breadth would diminish as greatly as its depth would increase. You take somebody that, for example, will just proclaim the whole of Scripture and put him into a church where that has not been the case. And within a few months, most of the people in that church will leave. That's been proven over and over again. Well, I close this morning. Boy, what a heart-wrenching spectacle this must have been. And Luke records it here in such detail. Finally, it's time for Paul to board the ship. I don't know, there may have been a bell that rang or some alarm of some sort that signaled. But in verse 36 we read, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Well, friends, it's sad, but the story of the church of Ephesus doesn't end here. The church that had been planted by Priscilla and Aquila had been pastored for three years by the Apostle Paul and It's now being left to Timothy, who would pastor it now for about a year and a half. We know that he had his hands full. For indeed, the false teachers rose quickly from among them. In fact, in this tearful farewell, there's a high probability that two elders were false teachers. We read about them later on in 1 Timothy 1. Their names were Hermanius and Alexander. Verse 3 of that text Paul said, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And all through first and second Timothy, you can see Paul trying to encourage Timothy. In verse 18, he said, fight the good fight of faith, keeping faith in a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. 
Among these are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And in chapter six, verse four, he said they are conceited and understand nothing. And speaking even more generally about these kind of people, they produce division, strife, evil suspicions, Paul says, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, these are the ones in the church who will wear a cloak of religious hypocrisy. But underneath that cloak, underneath that religious spiritual veneer is a heart of ambition that is seeking a following ultimately for financial gain. Watch out for them. We know that even Nicholas, who had been appointed a deacon in Acts 6, later on proved to be a false teacher here in the church at Ephesus. And all through First and Second Timothy, Paul tries to encourage Timothy who struggled with these men and others like them. And sadly, over the course of about 45 years, that church gradually fizzled out. We read about it, for example, in Revelation 2, where God speaks through John and tells us that they remained morally pure. They were even doctrinally precise. They even had a zeal for truth. But you know what they did? They lost their first love, their love for Christ. That church became nothing more than a perfunctory, cold, mechanical, dead, orthodox, Bible-believing church devoid of love for the one they served. And we know that God judged them. He did exactly what He said He was going to do unless they repented. He removed their lampstand from its place and the Ephesian church disappeared. Oh, dear friends, we cannot let that happen here. And I pray that God will protect us even from our own hearts that we will be discerning and that God will be honored, honored here in this place. That we will never come to such a tragic end. But I hope you see how dangerous this is. And how important it is for the leaders of a church, certainly this church, to be obedient to these essentials of eldership. Let's pray together. Father, these are solemn words and we praise you that you have given them to us. We thank you that by the power of your spirit, we can apply them to our hearts. Lord, it is difficult to preach these things because I see my own failures so clearly. As I'm sure we all do. So, Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to us. And that you will guard us from all of these things that you might be glorified in this place. We ask this in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.